Good morning, everyone. So glad to have you all out today. Um, this is a three-part series, so I'm sure many of you all have other workshops you'd like to go to, but I'm so glad to see you here for this one. Before we begin, would you mind having, wowing your head, your head with me to have a word of prayer? Our Father, which art in heaven, we're so grateful to be able to come before you. We thank you for this day, another day that you've given to us. And as we approach this topic, Father, I ask that you may give me the words to speak and that you may open the hearts of the listeners, that they may understand and be able to discern more the wiles of the enemy in this field. We thank you so much for this conference, and we pray for the other speakers as well, that the Holy Spirit may speak to them through those who are listening. In the name of Jesus, your Son, we do pray. Amen. Let me tell you a little bit about myself so you'll understand how I got into this topic. I am a licensed psychologist. I've been in the field for about 18 years. I taught at Oakwood College for four and a half years and then at the University of Tennessee uh, at Chattanooga for two years. Then I got into private practice after that. So I had a, a little wide range of work in this area and I've been doing this. When I first came into the field of psychology, I thought I was going to revolutionize the church because I was going to mix what I learned in psychology with the Bible and I thought that I would help everyone with their problems. Didn't work out that way. About two or three years ago, I ran across a sermon by Pastor Richard O'Feel online and he started attacking through, um, not me directly, but through his sermon, many of the things I had learned as a psychologist. Initially, I wasn't very happy. But as I started to study this more, and the Holy Spirit um, opened up avenues and places for me to go and read and learn more about this, I had to confess that what he was saying was true. And then I had a brief opportunity for a little over two weeks to work with as a uh, staff member with Dr. Neil Nedley, and that really opened my eyes. I thought I was coming up there to help, and I learned a lot more than I helped, and I was grateful for the opportunity. So since that time, with working with Dr. Nedley and uh, uh, many of the things that I've learned, it's been hard for me to continue my practice the way I was doing it before. So at this time, I've suspended my work from my private practice, and I'm asking the Lord what he would have me to do. So you all keep me in prayer with that, okay? And I'm not saying that it's wrong to go into private practice, but for what the Lord has shown me, I cannot continue to practice the way I'm practicing. Let's look at Christians beware the dangers of secular psychology. How many of you all are in psychology or thinking about going into psychology? I'm curious. I met some of you all. Put your hands up higher. Okay. Well, prayerfully, some things will be shared with you that will make you seriously consider and contemplate what you, the Lord would have you to do in this area. With, read this with me. Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. I did a little bit of study in this area, and Paul was talking to the church at Colossae, and was warning them about false teachers coming in. And what he found was the false teachers were effective in deceiving the people because they mixed truth and error. And so he was warning them, beware lest any of these men spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit. Now, from the beginning of time, 
Satan used truth and error. He started with our first parents. This verse in Genesis 3, 4, and 5 tells us, And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die, for God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be open, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Now, when we look at that, we see that there is a little bit of truth there, right? What's the truth? One person's. You'll know good and evil. That's about the only truth there. The rest of it was error. But I wanted to point this out because he mixed truth and error to deceive our parents, Adam and Eve. The servant of the Lord tells us the track of truth lies close beside the track of error. And both tracks may seem to be one to minds which are not worked by the Holy Spirit and which therefore are not quick to discern the difference between truth and error. And if you look at the picture, you'll see that the tracks, as they go further along, they look like they're coming together. Do they not? And that's what happens with truth and error when they're mixed together. And unless our minds are worked by the Holy Spirit, we're not going to be able to discern. In so much, that's why the Bible tells us, Jesus told the disciples and those who are listening, in so much that if it were possible, they shall deceive the who? And I'm bringing all of this up because I think this is a good groundwork to understand how secular psychology has come in and infiltrated, I like to use that word, our lives at home and in the church because it's not a clear, glaring era. And we'll see as we move on. This is taken from the servant of the Lord again. In these days, when skepticism and infidelity appear in a scientific garb, we need to be guarded on every hand. The advantage he, Satan, takes of the sciences, sciences which pertain to the what? Human mind, is tremendous. Here, serpent-like, he imperceptibly creeps in to corrupt the work of God. And when something creeps in imperceptibly, can you see it? No, it's something, it's like a snake. That's what I thought of when I heard that word. Comes in and you don't see it right away. Through the channel of phrenology, psychology. Now, I must add, when she was mentioning psychology back then, it was a little different than it is now. But I still thought this quote would be appropriate. And mesmerism, he comes directly to the people of this generation and works with that power which is to characterize his efforts near the close of probation, which is right now. Mark the influences of these sciences, dear reader, for the conflict between Christ and Satan is not yet ended. The sciences which treat of the human mind are very much exalted. And she put this in here, which I thought was very applicable. They are good in their place, but they are seized upon by Satan as his powerful agents to deceive and destroy souls. And we're going to see that as time goes on. Let's just give you a brief little history uh, psychology lesson. Psychology, there's a lot of definitions out there, but the most simple one is that is the study of mental processes and behavior. Mental processes that goes on in the mind and behavior, what we do. And it's taken from, these are the, the Latin roots, psyche, which is soul. And back then when they used the, the word soul, they meant mind. And ology, whenever you see ology added to a word, you know it's the study of that particular area. Um, psychology grew out of philosophy. Each theory behind each therapy provides a philosophy of life and a theology of man. Why we are the way we are and how we change. In fact, psychotherapy resembles religion more than it resembles medicine. 
So psychology's roots are in philosophy, and because of that, uh, I had a slide up there. I guess I don't have it. I had slides talking about some of the philosophers that contributed to the beginnings of psychology, such as Aristotle, Socrates, and Renard, Rene Descartes. So let's look at some of the major clinical and counseling psychology theories. Many of you all have heard of Sigmund Freud. Most of the time when I tell people I'm a psychologist, that's what they ask me. Do I come into your office and sit on a couch and you tell you all my problems? And Freud was the one that um, gave the picture of that particular picture of psychology. Um, Freud's theory is very large and it encounters, uh, encompasses a lot of different ideas. So I thought I'd just kind of truncate it down to these one or two um, concepts. Freud says that who we are depends on what? There's some truth to that, right? Some truth. He also tells us to resolve our problems, we must talk about and understand what happened in our childhood. You all have heard that concept before. You need to understand childhood to understand some of the problems you're having as an adult. And I believe that hook, line, and sinker. In fact, I believe that probably up until maybe last year, I thought I didn't believe it. But as I started to analyze how I worked, I, I saw that I was still holding on to that. Then we have humanistic theory, which is um, the two major founders here are Carl Rogers and Abraham Maslow. And again, I'm sure you all have heard these names. They basically believe that we are born what? We're born good from the very beginning, and it's life experiences that cause us problems. They also tell us that problems develop because others love and accept us with conditions. They're conditions that people place on their love and acceptance of us, or because our needs are not fulfilled. That's why we have problems, according to Maslow and, and Rogers. Then they believe our problems will be resolved if our needs are adequately fulfilled, and if others love and accept us unconditionally, that's how our problems will be resolved, according to the humanistic theorists. Maslow was bold enough to say this, I sometimes think that the world will either be saved by psychology in the broadest sense, or else it would not be, will not be saved at all. Isn't that bold? But he really believed that. If you look at the backgrounds of these individuals, Freud was um, anti-religion, as you probably know. Maslow started out in the, I'm sorry, Rogers started out in the seminary and then started to get dis disgruntled with some of the things he was learning and decided to go in the field where we, he could just think more freely and not be, be restricted. And so he became a psychologist, which is exactly what happens. And then um, Maslow was influenced by a lot of Zen and Buddhism in his thinking. So when we incorporate these, we have to recognize the roots of these uh, theorists' thinking. The encroachment of, of the psychology way into Christianity has been a subtle, gradual movement. In other words, as she says, imperceptible which began in seminaries and pastoral counseling classes. Pastors were concerned about their parishioners seeking help outside of the fold, and so they availed themselves of the wisdom of men in order to minister to souls. I was curious. I wondered, how did psychology start to come into the church? And I did a little research, and I found out that what was happening was that pastors didn't feel sufficient to help the, prop, the um, parishioners need, their congregations needs with the psychological problems. And so they started to go to psychologists and, and uh, pastoral counselors to help them with the problems. Yes? 
Oh, for recording, read the sources. Whoa, that's going to take a while. I don't know if I could do that. <laughs> Actually, let me just let you know that I do have this first presentation. I've written a book, and those who are interested in more information can purchase that to help our ministry. So I think it will take long for me to read that. Um, I'll try as best as I can, but we'll see. This comes from a history of pastoral care in America. Um, Pastors believed the lie that they could only deal with spiritual matters and that only those who were psychologically trained were equipped to deal with psychological matters. Through the years as a psychologist, I've received many calls from pastors saying, can you help with this family? Can you help with this individual who's in experiencing this emotional problem or that emotional problem? And initially, I used to be so happy to get these calls because I'd say, wow, our pastors are starting to realize that psychology can help and they're really utilizing this. Now my reaction is mixed because as I went through and started studying more of this area, I wondered what is happening with our pastors that we're losing power in terms of helping our members. And I have to be careful how I say this um, because I think many of them mean well. But I started to think about that now as I get these calls and, and the feeling is not the same as before. Christians now perceive the psychologists and psychiatrists as the experts in Christian living. These days, few people consider going to Bible teachers to learn how to grow in their Christian walk. Many of you all would probably be surprised if someone said to you, you need to go speak to a pastor or a Bible teacher about this particular problem that you're having. Those of us who've been trained to think that psychologists are experts in living would find that kind of strange. In fact, I said to one person said to me one time, you know, the reason I've come to you, Dr. Parks, is because I'm tired of getting having people say to me, oh, just pray about it and read the Bible. And in a way, they're accurate, because if you just send people away with that and not lead them through a series of steps, they're not going to get the help they need, will they? But at the same time, coming to psychologists can bring with it its problems. Now, this first session, I'm not going to get into too much about the therapy piece. That's going to be my next session. Um, so if you don't come to it, I hope you can get it on tape or something. Humanistic theory. We should have a what? High self-esteem. This is what Carl Rogers, the pictures of Carl Rogers, tells us. We all as individuals should have a high self-esteem. In Roger's view, a person who has a poor self-concept is likely to what? Read that with me. Think, feel, and act negatively. I'm sure many of you all have said that. This person has problems because they have low self-esteem. They don't think highly of themselves. That's why they're having problems in this area. And we have taken in that thinking, not realizing as Christians really what we're saying. And we're going to explore that more. He also, this is um, Frome, he emphasized the importance of self-love. Eric Frome believed, too, that the doctrine that man is selfish and has nothing good in himself is not healthy and promotes what? I believe that myself. After going through school at Ohio State, I, I would read things in the Bible and I'd say, why did God put this in the Bible? This would, you know, people would feel so bad about themselves. You know, your, all your righteousness does unfilthy rags and no one is good. Doesn't God understand that this would affect our self-esteem? That's how deceived I was in questioning what God would put in his word. Yes, I see a hand. His name is Eric Fromm, F-R-O-M-M. So let's look at some of the impact this self-esteem movement has had on um, Christianity. 
Listen to this quote. A person is in hell when he has lost his self-esteem. Any creed, any biblical interpretation, and any systematic theology that assaults or offends the self-esteem of person is heretically failing to be truly Christian. The most serious sin is one that causes me to say what? I am unworthy. And this is from a person from the Crystal Cathedral, Dr. Robert Schuller. He is very much into this self-esteem movement. And if you listen to him on TV with his smile, he's always trying to affirm people and say positive things. On the outset or on the surface, this sounds good. But as we go on, we'll see there's some danger to it. You know, this movement has affected our church in a way that I don't think we realize. I want to give you a key example of this. In the worship, church worship, I don't know if you remember this um, hymn, Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? Do you remember when the song went that way? I remember it changing on me and saying, what's happening? But I didn't, back then I didn't understand. Now it reads, alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for someone such as I? No longer are we worms. Because, see, worms makes us feel bad about ourselves. So now it's someone such as I. And some of you may be saying, what's the big deal? Again, I like what Dr. Pippin says. He says, we pick the fruit, but we don't know the root. And these changes are occurring, and on the surface it sounds good, but there is something that's imperceptibly creeping in. How many of y'all have heard, I'm sure, of the contemporary Christian music movement? You know, this movement has a lot of its base in secular psychology. Let me just give you a few aspects of it. It incorporates various secular music styles into the worship services. It encourages a more casual dress for worship. It emphasizes a focus on God's love and mercy while minimizing what? Obedience or works. It uses choruses in place of traditional hymns. And this is a wonderful book. I don't know how many of you all have read it by Dan Lucarini. He's not a Seventh-day Adventist. Why I left the contemporary Christian music movement. I would advise you to try to get that. Very powerful book on the contemporary Christian music movement. And what he says in this book is, in my own experience, I noticed we contemporaries, meaning people who follow this contemporary Christian music movement, prefer to raise our faces and hands up to God and cause that, call that worship. I thought back to when I first changed my personal worship style from bowing my head to looking up. I remember the good feeling it gave me that I was for the first time a participant in worship with God. Not some lowly worm, there's that word again, who had to prostrate myself. And at the end, he says, I felt better about myself. Do you see how that self-esteem philosophy undergirds that? If you raise and lift your hands, you'll feel better about yourself than bowing down. It's even affected some of our publications. I don't know how many of you all might have not remembered this um, Sabbath school lesson in, in April. The first thing Jesus does is to tell Simon Peter the work he is going to have him do. This is after uh, the Lord meets Simon Peter, after he rise, is resurrected. Perhaps Jesus, knowing Peter's lack of self-esteem, 
immediately told him of his important task in order to help Peter understand that although he was a sinner, Christ not only accepted him, but was going to trust him with important work. Now, the Peter that you all have learned about, would you describe him as having low self-esteem? <laughs> I don't think so. I think Peter's um, problem was exactly the opposite. But this author, again, not realizing that he's buying into this self-esteem thinking, put this in the Sabbath school lesson. Now let's look at the truth about this. Is self-esteem to be self, I'm sorry, to be esteemed or denied? And I don't, we don't have time to look up these verses. How many of you all have your Bibles? Oh, good. I forgot where I am. I shouldn't be surprised. Matthew 16, 24. Someone look that up for me real quickly. If you're to the front, I'm going to put the mic to your mouth so you can read that to us. And, and Jesus tells us why, what we are to be doing with self in this verse. Anyone? Would you like to read that for us? Then Jesus said unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Thank you. So what is Jesus saying we should do there with self? Deny self. Let's look at a second verse. Philippians 2, 3. Deny self. That's the first instruction Jesus gives us about how we should deal with self. Philippians 2, 3. Anyone? Can we reach? Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Read that last part for me. Let each. Let each esteem other better than themselves. All right. So the Bible is telling us what about esteem there? To esteem who better? Others. Do you see that as a little bit of a contradiction there between what we're being told by Rogers and all the other folks and what the Bible is telling us? Yes? Okay, some of you all are kind of looking at me blankly. <laughs> Maybe you don't see the difference, but as time goes on, hopefully you'll see. Um, the servant of the Lord tells us we must realize that we are in Christ's school not to learn how we may esteem ourselves, but how we may cherish the meekness of Christ. Self and selfishness will ever be striving for the mastery. It is a fight that we must have with ourselves that self shall not have the victory. So she's telling us that when we are in Christ's school, we're not learning how to esteem ourselves. We're actually trying to subdue self in Christ's school. And she also tells us, if you will sincerely humble your hearts before him, empty your souls of self-esteem and put away the natural defects of your character, he will bestow on you his Holy Spirit. So this, in here we have counsel that tells us our work should not be trying to esteem self, but seeking to be more like Christ. Um, now, does this mean we should go around as Christians with our head down, feeling terrible about ourselves and saying, I'm not supposed to have self-esteem, I'm, I'm just such a rotten person? Do you think that's what this means? I like the word that she uses. She says, it is not pleasing to God that you should demerit yourself. You should cultivate a self-respect. And this is how. By living so that you will be approved by your own conscience and before men and angels. While we should not think of ourselves more highly than we ought, the word of God does not condemn a proper self-respect. As sons and daughters of God, we should have a conscious dignity of character in which pride and self-importance, which underlies most of the self-esteem thinking among secu in secular psychology, have no part. 
So that, does that make more sense to you of how we should be viewing self in terms of Christians? The self-respect that comes from living right before God. Living right so our consciences are not bothered. That's the type of respect or that's the view or attitude towards self we should have. Now, you know, I found interesting. I actually heard Dr. Nedley first do this years ago at Wildwood where he would present the research and then show how it was I don't want to say confirmed, but supported by spirit of prophecy. And I wanted to do that myself here. There's secular evidence that supports. There are psychologists who are starting to get uh, a hang of this and recognizing this self-esteem movement is not going the way we thought it was. Look at this. This was a study done at a university. College students who base their self-worth on external sources, including appearance, Approval from others and even academic performance reported high stress, anger, academic problems, relationship conflicts, and had high levels of drug and alcohol use and symptoms of eating disorders. Interesting. They go on to say students who base their self-esteem on internal sources, such as being a virtuous person or adhering to moral standards. Does that sound familiar? Living before God and men and angels with our consciences, living by not violating our consciences. Very similar to what she says. These individuals were found to have higher grades and were less likely to use alcohol and drugs or develop eating disorders. So look at the conclusions that the researchers reached. We really think that if people could adopt goals not focused on their own self-esteem, but on something larger than themselves, then they would be less susceptible to some of the negative effects of pursuing self-esteem. 2002. So some psychologists are starting to catch on to the notion that this self-esteem push is not going in the direction we thought it would. And then this one was done a while ago. No, this one is 96. I'm thinking of one after this. Research suggests that those with high self-esteem display various problematic behaviors, including classroom violence, hostility toward others, and other aggressive behaviors. So we can continue to push for this high self-esteem, but spiritually we see in the council that that's not going to help. And then research is starting to also recognize that. And that's why we should really be saying, but God forbid that I should glory. Save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. Who said this? Paul. Paul said this in Galatians. And this should be our goal. The only thing we can glory in is what God has done for us through the cross. Now, let's look at another thing other than self-esteem. Unconditional positive regard or unconditional acceptance. This one gets real tricky because we see a good example of truth and error being mixed together. A good definition of this is accepting, valuing, and being positive toward another person regardless of that person's behavior. Isn't there some truth in that? We shouldn't respond to people based on their behavior. There's some truth there, but there's also some danger as well. His idea is that if we are born good and we are accepted and loved with no conditions or requirements, we will naturally gravitate toward what is right. That's the problem with this thinking. 
It sounds good on the surface, but it's based on the philosophy that we are born good. And if we're born good, if people just leave us alone and don't tell us how to do anything, we'll just naturally grow towards right. You see the danger in that? Eric Fromm was one of the first psychologists to describe love as supreme and conditional. And it was from him that we started to use the phrase unconditional love. So we learned, we, we uh, acquired the phrase unconditional love from Eric Fromm, and then we acquired the phrase unconditional acceptance from Carl Rogers. And I'm kind of grouping them together as we go on. Now, what's the impact on Christianity? Ever since the rise of secular humanism in this country, and especially since the rise of humanistic psychology, the popular, relevant term to describe God's love has been what? The thrust of this word in humanistic psychology has been to give and to expect unconditional love from one another with no strings attached. It makes no requirements. The contemporary Christian music movement has been readily embraced Because it is based on the idea that God accepts us unconditionally, thus he accepts however we choose to dress, however we choose to worship, however we choose to live, however we choose to eat. Because God loves us and accepts us unconditionally. So we have the come as you are popular thinking in church today. There are no standards, just preferences. You prefer to worship this way, I prefer to worship this way. No problem. God loves and accepts us unconditionally. How many of you all receive these postcards from some um, non-advantaged churches where they say, you know, come to our worship. You can dress as you want. You ever seen those? Based on this unconditional love philosophy. God accepts me as I am. You should too. Don't question how I dress, eat, worship, or play. Acceptance doctrine is so pervasive to some fellowships that Christians are no longer allowed to question another Christian's behavior or personal preferences. If you confront another in love, you will be accused of what? If you dare quote chapter and verse from the Bible, you will be called a Pharisee. If a church has practices that steps on the toes of another, anyone's personal preferences, then it is considered to be a legalistic church. Do you see how this unconditional philosophy is affecting us? Does anybody not see that? If not, we can talk about it later. (laughs) Let's look at the truth about this. First of all, God's love cannot ignore sin. Okay? This goody-goody religion that makes light of sin and that is forever dwelling upon the love of God to the sinner encourages the sinner to believe that God will save him while he continues in sin and he knows it to be sin. This is the way that many are doing who profess to believe present truth. Now, you would find it kind of strange that Ellen White would say that the religion that dwells upon the love of God to the sinner encourages the sinner to believe that God will save him. But what she's saying here is when we focus on this in the wrong way and we're not looking at his love as that which also encompasses consequences and and salvation, we can run into problems. Thus saith the Lord unto his people, thus have they loved to wonder. They have not refrained from their feet. Therefore the Lord, what? 
doth not accept them. When I ran across this verse, I said, wow, what a contradiction to this unconditional acceptance thing. He will now remember their iniquity and visit their sins in Jeremiah 14.10. Now, if we look at these verses, I don't know if we'll have time. Let's just look at one of them. Revelation 20.15. Tell me if that shows unconditional love to you. Someone turn to that for me. Revelation 20, verse 15. Now, my husband, he's corrected me here. He says, you really should explain to people that God's love has some unconditionality to it. But it's his salvation that has conditions. And I agree with that. But I think what happens is that because we've taken the humanistic concept of unconditional love, we forget the part about the results if we choose to walk away and stay away from him. Can you read that for us? And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. What do you think of that in relationship to this humanistic unconditional love? If God loved us unconditionally, Christ wouldn't have had to come to die on the cross. Adam and Eve would not have been expelled from the Garden of Eden. And at the end, we would not have the option of being destroyed if God's love was as unconditional as the humanistic psychologists are telling us. Another truth aspect to this era is we cannot naturally choose to do good, brothers and sisters. In spite of what Carl Rogers says, the Bible tells us there is none that doeth good. No, not one. So we will not naturally progress towards doing good. The word of God tells us differently. The carnal or natural mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. These are the kind of things that Rogers probably read in seminary that let him know I need to go into another field that's going to allow me to think more freely, such as psychology. But our natural mind is not subject to God's law. We will not naturally engage in and do the things that he wants us to do. And we're also taught work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure, found in Philippians 2, 12 and 13. It is only as God works in us that we can do any good. Another aspect of this that we need to address about this unconditional love, it does not adequately describe God's love. There is a strong temptation to use vocabulary that is popular in society to make Christianity sound what? Christians have something far better to offer. But in expressing that good news, they confuse people by using words that are already loaded with humanistic connotations. It would be better not to use the expression unconditional love when describing God's love. There are plenty of other good words that do not skew his love or character with psychological distortion. You know, when people would come into me, into my practice in my office, I was taught this Carl Rogerian thinking that when they came up in, I had to put aside my values, put aside my beliefs and just accept whatever they're saying because they have problems because people have put conditions on them. And if I put conditions on them, they're not going to be able to heal from their problems. And so that's why we were taught to reflect on people's phrases. I see what you're saying. I feel what you're saying. The idea behind that is I'm saying as little as possible to not put any conditions on what they're bringing in. And there's some truth to that, that when you do those kind of things, people are more likely to talk. But again, we have to recognize what the basis of this is. Now, isn't the parable of, pro- of the prodigal son an example of God's unconditional love and acceptance? I used to think that. 
I used to think, you know, the parable, the prodigal son came home and the father had no conditions on him. Let's see what actually someone that I saw here, he did an editorial on this and I thought it was so applicable, Kevin Paulson. It remains true that the prodigal son left the pig pen and his sinful life before his father took him back. We don't read of the father traveling to the city where his son partied, apologizing for the legalistic rules that which drove the son away, then offering the son an unconditional invitation to return irrespective of how he lived. Jesus taught no such gospel, no such perversion of divine grace. What did the son have to do before he returned? Repent, which said that it was not unconditional. Am I correct? There's something he had to do. The father accepted him in love, but there is something the son had to do. Now, can we as human beings truly love each other unconditionally? Are we capable of that? Human beings are naturally self-biased, and the human heart is so deceitful that one can fool himself into thinking that he is loving unconditionally, unconditionally, when in fact he has all kinds of conditions. The heart is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. Who can know it? So we can say that we're loving people unconditionally when in actuality we're not. Now, are we judging others when we may share with them concerns about their lifestyle, behaviors, worship style, etc.? Are we judging others? What is judging? Matthew 7, 1 tells us, judge not that ye be not judged. I read that, uh, the uh, Bible commentary on this and I thought it was so helpful. In this text, Jesus is referring particularly to judging what? Another's motives, not judging the right or wrong of his act. So those who say that when we're speaking to our brothers and sisters about things that we may see that are of concern, that we're judging, that's not accurate. Now, I will say, Christians who are truly judgmental, they have encouraged us to accept this unconditional love and unconditional doctrine, un unconditional acceptance doctrine. I've met people who so want to change others to dress as they dress, to eat as they dress, as, as they eat. Have you run across people like this? And we're pushing our views, we're pushing our beliefs, not being led by the Holy Spirit to speak to someone. And it's this kind of action that has led to the Christian church, I believe, embracing this idea of unconditional love because they're so taken aback by people who come to them in this judgmental way. So you see how Satan is coming at us from all directions? So we have to be careful when we're telling people about things that we see, where they're going astray. We have to be careful not to push people into accepting some of these humanistic ideas. Now let's look at one other thing. I don't know how far we're going to get into this. We have certain psychological needs that must be met for us to fulfill, fulfill our fullest potential in life. And this is by Abraham Maslow. And I'm sure those of you in psychology have seen this hierarchy, right? Physiological needs, safety needs. Love and belongingness needs, esteem needs, that's where self-esteem comes up, and self-actualization needs. The idea behind this hierarchy is that these bottom needs must be met before the higher needs are met. And Maslow said, if you don't meet these needs, then the higher needs will not be met. Some truth to that, is that not true? But we'll see where it is a problem. From the beginning, Maslow's aim was to displace moral philosophy and religion with the science of man. He said throughout history, 
Humanity has adopted, has looked for guiding values for principles of right and wrong outside of itself to a God, to some sort of sacred book. So his idea was, don't look to the Bible or to God, look to my hierarchy and follow this and your life would be so much better. What's the impact on Christianity? How many of you have heard of the seeker-sensitive movement? Not many of you? This movement targets the quote-unquote unchurched. The idea is people will not come to church unless we seek to fulfill their felt needs. Willow Creek. How many of you have heard of Willow Creek? Um, the guy who worked Purpose Driven Life. I'm blanking on him. Wick Warren. Very seeker-sensitive. And if you read their books, you will see a lot of psychology weed through it. And their idea is some people will not come to church if we do it the regular way. So we have to reach out and find out what their needs are and fulfill that. So churches are becoming increasingly focused on programs, ministries, departments that meet needs. I'm going to step out on some thin ice here. But I see ministries and departments growing in our churches. And as a psychologist, understanding how much felt needs are pushed by psychologists, there's a big question mark in my head. Where is this coming from? Disability ministries, singles ministries, youth ministries, children ministries, women's ministries, men's ministries, drama ministries. I'm just, just questioning, wondering. In 1971, Bill Hybels, youth pastor at Park Ridge's South Park Church, started a group with a friend, David Halmo, called Sun City. Modern music, dramatic skits, and multimedia were combined with Bible studies in relevant language, helped the group grow from 25 to 1,200 in just three years. After 300 youth waited in line to be led to Christ in a service in May 1974, Heibel and other leaders began dreaming of forming a new church. They surveyed the community to obtain what their needs were, to find out why people weren't coming to church as well. Common answers included, church is boring. They're always asking for money. Or, I don't like being preached down to. These answers shaped the group's approach to the new church. In October 12, 1975, the group held their first service at Palatine's Willow Creek Theater. 125 people attended the service. Just by surveying the needs. Another example of this, we're told, one pastor says, limit your preaching to roughly 20 minutes because boomers, baby boomers, don't have much time to spare. And don't forget to keep your messages light and informal, liberally sprinkling them with humor and personal anecdotes, because this will fulfill their needs better. And then Rick Warren tells us, we use the style of music that the majority of the people in our church listen to on the radio. They like bright, happy, cheerful music with a strong beat. Their ears are accustomed to music with a strong bass line and rhythm. Meet their needs. They'll come to church. And from the eye, from sight, it works. Look at the thousands of people attending these megachurches. So if we were to go to these people and, and share any of this, they look at you, you as though you're crazy because they're saying, don't you see how successful this is? Look at the size of your church. You're not doing this. Do you have these many members? 
We're meeting felt needs. You need to, too. So we have these problems in our church, marital problems, loss of new and old members, loss of young people, family problems. And the idea is if we can get ministries or if we could do programs to fulfill the needs of these people, then we can have a more thriving, growing church. The change in emphasis from knowing and obeying God to understanding and meeting the needs of self has captured the pulpits and the hearts of men. Because of the great emphasis on understanding and meeting man's needs, Christians are, read this with me, becoming more psychological in their thinking than biblical. Imperceptibly coming in. We don't realize it. But the Bible tells us, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Something completely different to what we're hearing from these needs-oriented psychologists. We're to seek God's kingdom and seek his righteousness. You know, most of the time when we hear this verse, we're focusing on seeking God's kingdom. But he also says, seek his righteousness. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that later. Meeting felt needs does not protect us from spiritual problems. Many Christians believe a humanistic lie that when people's needs are met, they will be good, loving people. Through the influence of humanistic psychology, they believe that people sin because their needs are not met. However, scripture does not bear this out. Adam and Eve had it all, yet they chose to sin. The Bible places God's will and purpose at the center rather than so-called psychological needs. So if it was true that if we meet people's needs, they'll not sin, they'll do well, Adam and Eve would not have done what they did. They had it all. Every single need you could think of. And then this undue focus on need encourages us to be self-centered. The Christian church, traditionally keen on mortifying the desires of the flesh, on crucifying the needs of self in, in pursuit of the religious life, has eagerly adopted the language of needs for itself. We now hear that Jesus will meet your every deed, need as though he was some kind of divine psychiatrist or divine detergent, as though God were simply to service us. Scary. Now, you know, I'm going to go back to Willow Creek. I'm going to say this later on as well. Do you, have you all heard about the Adventist Review article where they're starting to rethink what they're doing? Anyone? Oh, I have to read this to you all. I can't just speak it. I want to read it. Even Willow Creek is realizing that they've gone wrong. Ah, uh, let's see. Yes, it is. Um, Willow Creek has released the results of a multi-year study on the effectiveness of their programs where they sought to reach people with their felt needs and philosophy of ministry. The study's findings are in a new book entitled Reveal Where You Are, co-authored by two of the pastors at Willow Creek Church. Um, the results were, were described as earth-shaking, groundbreaking, and mind-blowing. And this is what Willow Creek is now saying, Bill Hybels. We made a mistake. What we should have done when people cross the line of faith and become Christians, we should have started telling people and teaching people that they have to, to become responsible and to become self-feeders. We should have gotten people taught people how to read their Bible between services, how to do the spiritual practices much more aggressively on their own. This is going to pull the rug out of many churches who've been following this style, brothers and sisters. I don't know if you realize how powerful this is. 
Our dream now, they're saying, is that we fundamentally change the way we do church. That we take out a clean sheet of paper and we rethink all of our assumptions, replace it with new insights, insights that are informed by research and rooted in scripture. Our dream is really to discover what God is doing and how he's asking us to transform this planet. Powerful. I did I ask you, how many of y'all have heard of Willow Creek? I don't remember. Okay, so y'all are familiar with what's happening here. They're starting to find out that their model of reaching the unchurched is not working, something the Bible told us a long time ago, and now they're starting to see that it, this is true. It's difficult to see how one can begin with the glory of man or self, including felt needs and progress to the glory of God. Now, am I saying that we should not focus on needs at church? No, I'm not saying that at all. Even Jesus himself in Desire of Ages, she tells us that when the multitude came to him, he sought to fulfill their bodily needs first. That's why he fed them. He knew that they probably would not be able to concentrate and, and, and take in the messages as, as much because there were physical needs that's being met. You know, if you're dealing with homeless people and all of that, their needs you're going to have to meet. To, to fulfill. My concern is, is that we're so focused on these needs, it's at the top, and then what we're supposed to do with spiritually with people is falling apart or being ignored. That's the fear that I have. And um, someone said it well in terms of the various ministries that we have. The ministries are so focused on making sure people are not feeling lonely or, or, or not feeling alone that they're getting us to focus more on self than on doing the work we're supposed to be doing as a people. That's why the Bible says, but my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. So why should we be concerned? I wanted to end a little in case you had questions. Why should we be concerned about psychology's influence? If you build upon human theories and inventions, Ellen White tells us, what will happen? Your house will fall. We're finding that. That if we build our lives on these human inventions of self-esteem, unconditional love and acceptance, Meeting people's felt needs. You know, I heard Pastor Asher give uh, a story one time. Some of you might have heard this. I might not be telling it with all of the details, but you'll get the basic gist. He talked about a pastor going to a woman's house who just lost their, her child, only child, and husband in a car wreck. What is the need at that time as the pastor's going to the home? The need seems to be these people need to be comforted, Right. At the same time, there's a wire crossed beneath her house that could cause a fire. And the pastor knows it. So if the pastor just comes and spends all the time comforting, you know, talking to her, that wire is crossed, what can happen? Everyone can die. So the need was not only what he saw, there was another need to save a life. And as Christians, when we're dealing with people, we have to recognize that. It's good to help all of these people, but there is a destruction that's coming that people need to hear about as well. There's God's love that people need to hear about as well. And if we get so focused on just fulfilling needs and forget the spiritual need, people can die. I thought that was a powerful analogy where he was talking about Himself, Pastor Asherick talking about how much we focus on these felt needs. And my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because thou has rejected knowledge, I will also reject thee. Lack of knowledge about how psychology is affecting us. There is one safeguard against Satan's deceptions and snares. 
That is the truth as it is in Jesus. The truth planted in the heart, nourished by watchfulness and prayer, nourished by the grace of Christ, will give us discernment. Those of you in psychology right now, some of this that I've mentioned today might seem hard. It did to me when I first started reading about it. It seemed very hard because, um, and I'm giving away some of my next talk, but Christianity and psychology has been so embedded that the, the idea of pulling psychology away seems absurd to some people. But my prayer and my plea to you is that you will take the information that I presented today, I'm talking specifically those of you going into psychology or in psychology, and present it before the Lord and ask him to lead and guide. And he will help you. Um, your teachers and others may think that you're going down a wrong track if you decide to change. Um, if you don't decide to change, I strongly suggest that you pick up books such as Mind, Character, and Personality, and Adventist Home, and Child Guidance. Speaking of uh, Child Guidance, um, I used to work with the foster care system, and once after my insight about the truth, the foster care system once uh, sent a young lady to me who was abusing her children, and they had to take the children away. And they sent her to me just for testing. But in that process, the Lord impressed me to share some things with her, and I Xeroxed a couple pages from child guidance and gave it to her. She came back to me and said, you know, I went through nine weeks of parenting classes, and nothing was as powerful as what you gave to me from this book. Who is this woman? We don't recognize the storehouse that we have um, through the writings of Ellen White. And in the beginning of my, my book, Pastor um, Elder Thomas Molstert, who's the president of Pacific Union Conference. He wrote the foreword for me. And he said to me, years ago, he went to, I think it was the seminary, to get an advanced degree in psychology. And at the end of one of his classes, the professor who was a Baptist professor came to him and says, I have all of Ellen White's books. And I wish that we could, if your church would be, would be powerful, if you could put Ellen White's books together with the Bible, we'd be able to d deal with practically all of the mental problems that we're having. He dropped out of the program after that. No need to continue. The problem is, I have had people say to me, well, Ellen White and the Bible is not practical. <laughs> and what I've shared and found out is the problem is we don't know how to use the books properly. We don't know how to use the Bible properly. And it'd be wonderful to see somewhere a biblical counseling class to come up to help. And there may be some, some of those around, I don't know, based on our beliefs to help people because people are hurting and dealing with a lot of issues and telling them to go to the Bible and read and pray is not going to help them. We need to do more, but we don't need to turn to the wisdom of men. Amen? I hope this has been helpful for you, um, and my prayer is that God will continue to lead you and guide you. Are there any questions? Any questions from any of... Yes? Self-esteem is, I didn't give a definition. Um, I can give one off the top of my head, is the idea of promoting self. Promoting self so self can feel good. Whenever you esteem something, you promote it. You lift it up. Did I see any more hands? Yes. What was that quote that you said about God serving men? God serving men. Okay, I'll go back at the end and find it for you and give it to you. Any other questions? Yes. What do you have to say about positive psychology? Positive psychology. Are you talking about Seligman? Yeah. 
Oh, what do I have to say positive about psychology? Oh, okay. Oh, positive thinking. Um, it sounds good. There was actually a study that, actually, again, I keep calling his name, that Dr. Nedley shared one time. <laughs> and it, there was a study done, I think it was on Ohio State, and they actually showed that positive thinking does nothing. It's more of thinking realistically and thinking the truth that helps us. Positive thinking is just fluff. So I thought that was powerful. So we, not, we don't encourage people to think positively, but we want people to look at things truthfully. Do you want to say something about that? I saw you moving, Dr. Nidley. <laughs> okay. Um, would you then say that there's a difference in positive thinking as far as maybe you're talking about positive thinking about lifting ourselves up in self-esteem yes. versus the positive thinking of the Bible that says, think on those things which are lovely and pure and true. Right, and right. But notice the Bible doesn't say, think on those things that are positive. It, it, I see what you're saying. Like maybe it's just a play of words, sure. but you're right. In that broad sense, if you're focusing on what God says that will uplift us, yes, yeah. that will definitely be helpful. I agree, yes. See, yes, go ahead. Yes. And she says, Mommy, she was singing uh, scripture, scripture uh, memory verses. And I like that, that she says, Mommy, all things be joy. My husband just was six months in the ICU with mm. uh, cephalitis, almost died. And mm. she got into the college. So that, that I saw that like a positive, and I went through so much pain. And right. And still that rejoicing all things, even in, you know, in pain. Amen. I have to rejoice. Amen. I have to be positive. You know, right. I Amen. She, let me repeat for those who might not have heard. Her daughter was sharing with her some scripture verses about rejoicing in the Lord always. And her husband was just six months in ICU with encephalitis. And that... Okay. So he had a few medical problems. And for her, focusing on the verse about rejoicing always uplifted her and was a positive thing. But when I, when I was referring to positive thinking, again, I'm thinking psychological. And the push that they have is, has nothing to do with what the Bible says or what God says. It pushes, takes us towards self and not away from self. Did I see any other hands? Yes. Uh, you know, I've not seen that, and I don't know much about it, but from what I've heard, that's the push. Is thinking positively? Am I correct? It's the basis of thought that says, if, if you think on what you want, say you want a lot of money, you want it selling your work. If you think about this, and your, your thoughts are centered on that, you're getting it. You know, that has a new age basis. Yeah. That's what that is about. The is, you know, the energy and the vibes and all of that. They might not say that. But that's the idea. The thoughts will change. But, again, we know that's contradictory to what the Bible says. Yes? Cognitive therapy. If there was any therapy that think that's closest to the Bible, it's that one. Cognitive therapy, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. And the whole idea of changing our thoughts. Again, we just need to be careful with understanding the roots and just using the parts that's in accordance with the Bible. Um, I like substitute, I'm learning, I like the substitution of scripture versus our thoughts as opposed to just our thoughts. 
So, but there's some good things with that. Yes. I just heard a man testify lately that he, he took the scripture verses that helped him for his needs and his life and put them in cards and just would go over them and those go into your mind yes. and they change you. Putting scripture verses on cards and rehearsing them and that changes you. Yes. I saw a hand back there. Yeah, I'm asking this in terms of just for my own sake of defining terms. Okay. Um, if I'm understanding you well, feelings, I'm going to talk about that in my next session, actually. Feelings are as fickle and changeable as, I, don't, I can't think of an analogy. We can't base anything on feelings. So is it wrong to feel good that you dress well and that you're, you're, you're I don't know if I could tell you that, you know. <laughs> um, you know, that's kind of a hard one to call because we, you know, there's the human part as well. But my, my concern is that we get too focused on that. You know, if we place too much time focusing on that and too much time emphasizing how we look, that can turn us away from our, what our true mission and focus is. Yes? Well, I was just going to say we can, uh, of course, there's different self-worth and self-esteem. Uh, and, of course, we are worth everything because of what Christ did for us. And we dress well because of who we are. Mm -hmm. And who we are is based on what Christ did for us. We don't feel good about ourselves because we dress well. We feel good because of what Christ did for what Christ did for us. And and that of course affects who we are. It's back to the talk by Israel Ramos last night on identity. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's quite a difference between self-worth and self-esteem. The psychological literature merges those two together and that's why there's some confusing outcomes in Mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. But self-esteem, thinking that you're better than someone else based on anything external is going to lead to significant problems. One other point I'd like to bring out, this unconditional love you know, and this this is a pervasive thing. Mm-hmm. Is all through the, the world, this unconditional love aspect of things. And often we take that a little too far and say, God loves us all just the same. Did you know that's not true? The Bible talks about Daniel. How, how was he loved? <coughs> Greatly beloved. John, the disciple that Jesus loved. There's two types of love that Christ has for us as human beings. He loves us all, yes, in an unconditional way. But most of humanity, he loves in a very pitying way. Mm. It's not a love that he can be intimate with. It's not a closeness love. That is what he really longs for. And that is what I long for in him. But to say that he loves us all just the same, no matter how we think, no matter what we do, he, he longs for us to not destroy ourselves by not trusting in him and his way. But yes, there are marked differences in the way Christ loves us. Uh, and the Bible bears that out, and uh, it, it's important to understand. Thank you so much, Dr. Nedley. I think uh, we need to end so you all can get to your next one. If you have other questions, I'll be glad for you to come up and talk. And God bless you. Hopefully you learned something. Amen? All right. This media was produced by Audioverse and Hope Media Ministry for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to listen to more great media like this presentation, or if you would like to learn more about GYC, 
please visit www.gycweb.org. You can also find great witnessing media at audioverse.org and at hopevideo.com.